Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to episode number 223 of Real Life Ghost Stories and to kick things off this week I would like to say thanks to some of our newest Patreon subscribers. I would like to thank Chuck Jordan, Heather, Mary Kate Harbinson, Pamela Heffernan Collings and Joe Booms. Thank you so much for subscribing to the Patreon. I love you and appreciate you every single day and our film review this week. Our film review is 13 Ghosts. 13 Ghosts was released in 2001 It has 5.6 out of 10 on IMDb and 18% on Rotten Tomatoes. Arthur and his two children, Kathy and Bobby, inherit his uncle Cyrus's estate, a glass house that serves as a prison to 12 ghosts. When the family, accompanied by Bobby's nanny and an attorney, enter the house, they find themselves trapped inside an evil machine designed by the devil and powered by the dead to open the eye of hell. Aided by Dennis, a ghost hunter, and his rival Kalina, a ghost rights activist, out to set the ghosts free, the group must do what they can to get out of the house alive. Firstly, before we start, 2001 was um, 23 years ago, and not 10 years ago as I thought. So there, there's the real trauma and horror when, we, when you realise that it was 23 years ago. Okay, we're going to go likes and dislikes I am, I don't know where to start. It This this film was a wild ride. So firstly, I need to issue a formal apology to Nick Gordon of The Poisoner's Cabinet. And I need to issue a formal apology to everyone, every listener who has requested this film as a review over the years because I should have watched it sooner and you were all right. This film was absolutely insane it was insane it was bizarre and and you know what rotten tomatoes shut up with your 18 percent. shut up if you haven't seen this film and you're thinking that was the most convoluted and weird synopsis i've ever heard it's nothing compared to what actually happens in the film nothing it is honestly one of the most bizarre films i've watched in a really long time however there is so much to love about this film There's so much to enjoy about it. But, as everyone said, we need to talk about the actual ghosts themselves first. Okay? The 12 ghosts are the 12 like dark signs of the Zodiac or whatever the lore is. So you've got 12 different ghosts that are trapped in this house and accidentally released by the family. And they are so good. Those ghosts are brilliant. Are all of them particularly terrifying? No, but I desperately wanted to know the backstory for all of them. So just to say, the ghost that terrified me the most was the great child and his mother. That really freaked me out. There was also the ghost of the jackal who was kind of cool, uh, kind of cool in a bad way, you know, like violent, evil, 
was a man who had like a just a cage around his head basically and was just going around fucking people up that's the thing you need to know about these ghosts they are swinging bats they are beating the shit out of people they are stabbing people they are doing awful things and it's very entertaining to watch and for everyone over the years who has requested people have been chomping at the bit for a series to be made there is a whole band of people who are out there going we need a series to be made an anthology of the backstories of each ghost well guess what apparently as of august 2023 that anthology is being made and you best believe that i am going to be right there in in the front row watching every second of it and loving every second of it and look let's be clear here the story was mad it was completely batshit but there were genuine moments that were twisty and caught me off guard where i was like no way holy shit i did not see that coming and that's that's always good in a horror film also miss honey from matilda isn't it and that's just a bonus in every film which brings me to my dislikes column look there has to be a dislikes column i'm sorry i know everybody loves this film is it good i don't know is it highbrow horror absolutely not is it completely insane yes but did i enjoy every second of it yes also yes I was loving it. The script isn't great. <laughs> there is a the, the script isn't great. Some of the performances aren't great. There's lots of this film that will make you go, "Wait, what? Wait, ha- hang on a second. How did wait, what? Where did what ha- what?" To give you a brief example because I don't want to go through every part of the film. The children disappear in the early stages of the film, right? As you can imagine, they unlock the ghosts accidentally. Everything goes terribly wrong, right? And the children disappear in the early stage of the film. They don't reappear until much later with no indication of where they have been or what they have been doing despite the fact that the house is literally made of glass. The house is just glass walls and corridors. And I will say it, the story itself is genuinely convoluted and completely ludicrous. It's ridiculous. It, it just is bizarre. It, the opening scene reminded me of something from like this one of the scenes from Hellboy which is a film that I love. Uh, but I was not expecting that kind of vibe from this film. But somehow, even though it's convoluted, even though it's ludicrous and completely ridiculous, somehow, somehow it all works and is genuinely enjoyable. If you are somebody like me who is uh, pretty squeamish about gory things, a genuine thing to note is that there are lots of gruesome deaths and injuries in this film. And a lot of gruesome deaths and injuries that made me honestly go, oh God, oh no, that's awful. Oh no, I'm sorry that happened to you. I'm sorry, that's an awful way to die. But they were inventive with their deaths in this film. They were inventive. Just as the script was absolutely bizarre and ridiculous and the story was convoluted, as were the deaths. They they did not hold back on those deaths and I respected that. And this is one of those films that I would non-ironically describe as a romp. From the opening scenes right to the end, it doesn't take itself too seriously and it fully leans into the ridiculousness of it all. And you know what? I was here for it. I was 100% on board with this film. It definitely feels like the type of film that you could watch with a group of friends and have a great time doing it. Oh, and Matthew Lillard is in it. Like you just, I mean, what is not to love playing this harangued psychic who's having a terrible time as I said, Miss Honey is in it. They've got these glasses that when you put the glasses on, you can see ghosts. But if you don't have the glasses on, you can't see them. I mean, the whole thing is absurd. It's absurd. And they're running around in this glass house. And it, it, there's loads of ridiculous death. Just watch it. Just, if you haven't seen it, just watch the film. 
And I'm very much looking forward to this series coming out of the anthology of the backstory of all of those ghosts, because I will be I will be hooking that to my veins. Do you know what? Have a five stars, 13 ghosts. Have a five stars because I think you deserve it, especially because of that 18% from Rotten Tomatoes. What is going on there? It was a joy to behold. And that is the bottom line. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Which brings us to our stories this week. Now, our stories this week are completely inspired by a zine that I was sent a couple of months ago. So the zine is called Tell the Bees. And my stories today are inspired by stories that were in issue one and issue two of that zine. The zine is by Shan Ellis, who is an illustrator. And she created this zine called Tell the Bees, which is simply a catalogue of bizarre tales from folklore, fiction and history. The illustrations are absolutely to die for. The stories are brilliant. It's just, it's such a good little zine. I absolutely love it. And it's sort of, it feels to me like it's born of a place of love, of just loving a good spooky story. So Shan Ellis, like I said, is an illustrator. Her website is shanellisillustration.co.uk. The link will be in description. That's S-I-A-N-E-L-L-I-S, illustrator.co.uk. And her social media handle is at this is Shan Ellis. I would highly recommend having a look at her social media and getting your hands on one of those zines and seeing if you like it because I love it. I think it's gorgeous. I think they're absolutely beautiful. So thank you, Shan, for sending me the stories and thank you for the inspiration. And both of our stories today come from Cumbria, which is in the northwest of England. And let's get into it. Cumbria in England is well known for its natural beauty and protected landscape. Located in the county is the Lake District National Park. The Lake District, also known as Lakes of Lakeland, is a mountainous region and park famous for the scenery and its literary association with William Wordsworth. Wordsworth was an English Romantic poet who helped launch the Romantic Age in English literature in the late 1700s and early 1800s. His Daffodil poem is considered the quintessential Lake District poem. But Wordsworth wasn't the only poet with connections with this area. Wordsworth, along with Samuel Taylor Coleridge and Robert Southey, make up the Lake Poets. They were drawn to the area because of its romantic vision of seclusion. The landscape inspired their poetry, which in turn inspired others to visit. This sort of irony was not lost on Wordsworth. 
who lamented the growing popularity of the area. But the Lake District wasn't just famous because of its majestic scenery and famous poets. A certain lake by the name of Lake Thurlamir has become infamous. Water is one of the best places to hide secrets. And Lake Thurlamere is one of the greatest examples of all of Britain of a body of water full of secrets. An entire village has been lost to its murky depths, completely submerged. This includes an old manor house called Armbeth Hall. Many accounts refer to it as Armbeth House, but hall and house are interchangeable in this instance. Like the romantic poets who jotted their lyrics about the ways of the water and the movement of the mountains, words have created a life of their own when it comes to the story of Armbeth Hall and the mysterious lake. Glowing lights, spectral black dogs, unwanted decor and mansions of light have become romanticised in the stories that surround the manor. Before there was a large lake, there was a ribbon of water. Two skinny lakes connected at a narrow neck by a Celtic bridge, an ancient wooden structure. On the east stood Dalehead Hall, and on the west stood Armbeth House. But at the end of the 19th century, a man-made reservoir was created, sending the entire village underwater. But before that, Armbeth House held its own secrets. Legend has it that the daughter of the house was meant to be married the day after Halloween. Some of the friends of the family weren't sure about a Halloween wedding, saying that no good could come from a wedding held on a day like that. And when the servants woke up the day before, the bride wasn't ready for her breakfast. Instead, she was found drowned in the lake. She had been half strangled before being thrown into the water to drown. Her fiancé was the lead suspect, but little else is known about the case. The family abandoned the house after her death and for years it stood untouched and empty. But over time, the story of her death made ripple effects across the valley. Belief in the supernatural began to take hold of the community. The tragic event seemed to have attracted other unexplainable phenomena to call the Lake District home. One of the earliest records of Armbeth being haunted can be found in the Complete Guide to the English Lakes, which was published in 1855 by Harriet Martineau. She writes, Lights are seen there at night, the people say, and the bells ring. And just as the bells all set off ringing, a large dog is seen swimming across the lake. The plates and dishes clatter and the table is spread by unseen hands. That is the preparation for the ghostly wedding feast of a murdered bride who comes up from her watery bed in the lake to keep her terrible nuptials. Neighbours reported seeing lights shining in the windows on Halloween night. Two men investigated the property and heard sounds of water being drawn from the pump as well as heavy furniture moving. There was even a clatter of crockery. When they peered in the windows, the men saw a long table set for a feast and chairs arranged for guests. But there was nobody in the house. Sounds of revelry and music blasted from the rooms until the lights went out and silence followed. 
these stories ignited a slew of imaginative writers to add to the legend and cement its legacy. Five years later, Mackenzie Walcott refers to the dog who swims in the lake as the black dog in a piece of writing. Writer A.G. Bradley added to the story in his Highways and Byways in the Lake District from 1901. He writes about a ghostly wedding feast that was attended by other ghosts in the area. Accounts of the screaming skulls of Calgarth Hall as wedding guests also appeared in literature. But when the mayor and corporation of Manchester acquired the property, the ghost party ended. In 1908, W.T. Palmer, author of The English Lakes, wrote about the unexplainable events that followed the drowning. On a certain night, all the fugitive spirits whose bodies were destroyed in unavenged crimes assembled at Armbeth House. Bodies without heads, the skulls of Calgarth with no bodies, a phantom army and many weird shapes. The windows were alight with corpse candles, chains clanked in the corridors, and there are eternal shriekings. And that wasn't all of it. Palmer quotes Harriet Martineau's 1855 writings. On a bright, moonlit night... The spectator who looks towards it from a distance of two or three miles sees the light reflected from its windows into the lake. And when a slight fog gives a reddish hue to the light, the whole night easily be taken for an illumination of a great mansion. And this mansion seems to vanish as you approach, being no mansion, but a small house lying in a nook and overshadowed by a hill. So the tale expanded through the imaginations of writers. Armbeth was now a place for phantom armies, bodies without heads and heads without bodies. Over time, it has become a house of horrors that no one dares to enter. And now it would be impossible. Armbeth House disappeared under a new reservoir built in 1894. The entire village of Withburn along with Armbeth House was submerged underwater. Now completely lost, there have been no further sightings of strange lights, glowing mansions, ghostly wedding preparations or black dogs. Armbeth Hall suffered the same fate as the drowned daughter of the house. A poetic ending to a tragic story. No wonder some of the great romantic poets found inspiration in this place. There is no way of knowing what is true and what was fabrication. And with the house lost to the water, we will never know what happened to the spirits who attended the ghostly wedding feast. Who knows? Perhaps they are still feasting underneath the dark waters of the Thirlmere. The small village of Ireby is also in the county of Cumbria. With a population of just 180 people, it is a peaceful, fell village. The area dates back to 1237 when it was granted a market charter. A market town is a settlement that obtained by custom or royal charter a market right. This allowed it to host regular markets in the Middle Ages. Before the area was a market village, the land was home to a Roman settlement. By 100 AD, the Romans had reached all the way to the north of present-day England, known as the Lake District. This part of the land became the frontier of the Roman Empire, housing military bases. Roman soldiers built roads, forts and camps to protect the borders and supply routes. 
Irby sits nicely between the fells, so it was the ideal place to set up a military camp. This land has a deep history. But this story began much later. In the quaint town of Irby sits a modest manor with a complicated history and a bloody secret. A fully operational hotel now over Water Hall and the surrounding land has had its fair share of people come through over the years. But one of the most memorable guests is a ghost with no arms. This is the story of the Overwater Hall and how it gained a reputation as a haunted hotel. Was the estate the crime scene of a vicious murder or have rumours gained a life of their own, tainting the legacy of a man who once owned this lovely home? Like most paranormal stories, the truth is unknown. We only have what we are left with and in the case of Overwater Hall, we are left with witness accounts of wandering ghosts severed arms and a mad mistress. Our story starts in 1781, when a man named John Gaff purchased a house in Ireby. Before it was called Overwater Hall, the estate was known as Whitfield House. An advertisement from that year indicates that there was a modest dwelling owned by someone by the name of Simpson. Another notice in 1788 shows that John Gaff was living in a house on the Overwater Hall property in 1788. After his death in 1794, his son Thomas Gaff advertised the property but did not end up selling it. But in a 1797 notice, the house is described as follows. The buildings consist of well-built brick mansion house with six cellars, all arched, a front and back kitchen, a brew house, two parlours, a drawing room, ten lodging rooms, two large barns, three stables with lofts, four buyers, cart lodge with granary above the house and every other office complete and fit for reception for a genteel family. Thomas owned Whitfield until 1814 when he put it up for sale and a man named Joseph Gilbanks purchased the estate that year. And this is when our story begins to get interesting. Joseph Gilbanks was born in 1780 to a wealthy family near Ireby in Scothwaite Close. Joseph seems to have had an itch for adventure. The age of discovery was in full swing. Explorers were navigating the globe for the first time ever as people were seeing parts of the world they had only read about in books. Joseph Gilbanks was one of the privileged who left his hometown to see the world. By the time he was just 20 years old, he had already sailed all the way to Jamaica. There, for the next 14 years, he amassed a fortune working as a merchant. In 1814, he returned to England, but he wasn't alone. He had met and married the niece of the Chief Justice of Jamaica by the name of Mary Jackson. She was the daughter of Ralph Jackson of Normanby Hall in Cleveland. Newly married, with a small fortune burning their pockets, the couple moved back to England. They were ready to start a family and build a home for themselves. Joseph purchased three estates, Whitfield, Orthwaite and Stockdale. Orthwaite and Stockdale were close by Whitfield and he felt it was in their family's best interest to own all of the surrounding estates. Where Whitfield House once stood, now gone, Joseph built Overwater Hall. It is believed that he named it after a tarn or a type of lake that it neighboured. And Overwater Hall became the family seat. In 
So far, this all seems pretty ordinary. But this tale is about to get a little twisted. Legend has it that Mary wasn't the only woman in Joseph's life. While still in Jamaica, it is rumoured that Joseph took a mistress, a local woman, who fell pregnant with his child. When Joseph decided to leave Jamaica with his wife, his mistress wasn't too happy about him abandoning his responsibilities. While he and Mary boarded their ship that was to take them to Cumbria, his mistress wasn't far behind them. She set sail for England to find the father of her illegitimate child who abandoned her in Jamaica. Once she found him, she revealed to him that she had a child. Joseph was in shock and in fear that this would cause a massive scandal in his new hometown. He would do anything to avoid the news spreading, so he began to scheme. The story goes that he took his mistress onto the nearby lake by boat. There, in the middle of the lake, he attempted to drown her, but she fought back and tried desperately to crawl back onto the small boat. To keep her from getting onto the boat and to prevent her from being able to save herself from drowning, Joseph Gilbanks severed both of her arms. Without the aid of her arms, she was unable to stay afloat and the poor woman drowned in the lake. He was never charged with murder and the details surrounding the story, like so many, have been muddied and lost over time. But Joseph and his family lived in the house for several decades. Joseph became the Deputy Lieutenant of Cumberland and a magistrate, serving the Wigton Court for 40 years until his death. He and his wife Mary had three children, a son named Jackson and two daughters, Josephine and Mary. Josephine married a reverend named Henry Goff, while her sister Mary married a doctor named Richard Lawrence. Their brother Jackson never married and stayed at the estate with his mother after his father passed. Jackson and his mother Mary died in the same year, 1878. The house was then left to Jackson's sister, Josephine Goff. By the time she inherited the property, she had been a widow for 16 years. She was living with her only daughter in Abington at the time, so they rented the estate to several tenants. When Josephine passed away in 1888, her daughter inherited it all. Her daughter, Josephine Mary Agnes, did not move to the house right away, but a census from 1901 shows that she was living at the house with her friend, Mary McRae. When Josephine Agnes died in 1912, she left the house to her friend, Mary, who in 2022 sold some of the outlying portions of the estate. She eventually married and shared the home with her husband. After their deaths in 1925 and 1929 respectively, the house was put on the market. In 1929, the estate was purchased by a man named Frederick Alfred Gatti. He was a textile merchant who developed the khaki dye. That clever invention enhanced his fortune, especially when it was adopted by the British Army. Frederick died in 1951 and the estate was sold again. By 1952, the house was purchased by Charles Norma de Courcy Parry, a self-admitted wayward son of the Chief Constable of Cumberland. He also claimed to have purchased the estate while drunk. He made a name for himself by apprehending and killing the infamous wartime criminal Percy Topless, an army deserter from World War I and alleged murderer. He was the most wanted man in the country and 22-year-old de Courcy Parry joined his father in the search for him. 
When topless turned up in Cumberland with a Belgian automatic, a massive police chase ensued. The details are foggy about what actually happened, but the local police force fully credited de Corsi Parry for being the one who shot topless. In addition to the credit for killing one of Britain's most wanted, de Corsi Parry also lays claim to the most famous account of a ghost haunting the rooms of Overwater Hall. He only lived there briefly, between 1951 and 1953, but the house made a huge impact on the adventurer and huntsman. According to the legend, the ghost of Joseph Gilbanks's mistress is said to walk the rooms of Overwater Hall. Witnesses have claimed to have seen a black woman with no arms. In 1934, Parry described his experience with the ghost in a magazine called Horse and Hound. His account was as follows. I was assured that the old house was haunted by the ghost of a black woman who had met her sad ending by being drowned in the lake at the bottom of the garden. It was her husband who did the horrid deed, and when she came to the surface and clutched the side of the boat, then the brute up with a chopper and cut off her hands and down went she to the pike and weeds, bubble, 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 goodbye. A nasty tale without a doubt, and no wonder the lady walks the house and has terrified a great many people. Apparently, it is the lack of her hands that gives them the willies. No maids would sleep here and so cottages were built at the end of the back drive for them to sleep in peace. Naturally, I was a little curious to see this unhappy phenomenon and I was very surprised indeed on a Friday in August at 20 past 12 of the o'clock to see her pass noiselessly up the stairs and go into our best bedroom without opening the door. Right through the panels she went. Whoosh! She could not have opened the door. It sticks with age. And apart from that, she had no hands to turn the knob. Another legend reveals that the woman's arms haunt the lake where they are severed. According to folklore, the Tarn, or Small Mountain Lake, never freezes. It is believed this is because when the ice starts to freeze, the woman's severed arms appear and punch its way through the freezing formation, preventing the lake from becoming frozen solid. Today, the estate is a fully operational hotel and restaurant. When the hall found Monty Green and his wife Pixie, its life as a hotel took shape. The couple thought the estate would make a lovely little hotel and imagined running a bed and breakfast. It changed owners a few times before being bought by Stephen Bohr and Angel and Adrian Hyde in 1992. Guests of the hotel have reported hearing tapping noises and seeing the same apparition of a black woman with no arms wearing a bonnet on her head. The apparition is seen the most around the new year. Some guests have heard a tapping sound on one of the windows to the outside of the house, while others claim to hear disembodied voices in the corridors. One of the rooms appears to be a hotspot for the ghost. Room 3, which is the only room with a view of the tarn. It has reported the ghostliest activities. She's been spotted walking through doors, and one account involved a woman waking up to a glowing apparition wearing a headdress near her bed. One of the hotel's regular guests, who happens to be an undertaker, always stays in room three. But one morning, she told the owners that she never wanted to stay in room three ever again. She didn't give an explanation, but perhaps she had an encounter with the ghost. Surprisingly, another ghost can be spotted inside the house, but it isn't one you would expect. 
People have claimed to have seen the ghost of a grey terrier dog running around the hotel. The hotel accepts dogs, but no one has ever claimed the mysterious grey terrier. It comes and goes, but the mystery of who it belongs to and why it's there remains unsolved. Overwater Hall has a complicated history. From changing hands over and over and over again to a mysterious murder account that may not have a shred of truth to it. Overwater Hall and the Whitfield land is full of history. It's an amazing estate located in a beautiful part of the northwest of England that's worth a visit if you're in the area. Whether or not you are brave enough to stay in room 3, its story is worth checking out. The Gilbanks' coat of arms can be seen above the hotel entrance. Five hearts, a rose and two trefoils, surmounted by a stag's head with the family motto, Honour and Virtue. But if the stories of Overwater Hall and the grisly murder of Gilbanks's mistress are true, then was there ever really honour and virtue at Overwater at all? Before we break down these stories a little bit, I just want to say another massive thank you to Shan for sending me those zines and inspiring these stories. Again, the links to where you can look at Shan's work and potentially buy copies of her zine if you want are in the description of this episode and just to be clear this this isn't like (laughs) sponsored content you know Shan did not send me these and say hey can you shout these out in the podcast and I'll pay you money for no it's nothing like that I just really liked her zines and I really liked the stories so I wanted to share them with people that is why but listen, come here to me. Who knew that the Lake District was so haunted? Probably everybody, actually, and I just am behind the times. I, I If you cast your mind back to, uh, I think it was 30, 31 Days of Terror, 2023, when I did a an interview with Joseph Ryan Hughes about his play, We Are Monsters, we talked all about the hauntings of the Lake District, specifically Lake Windermere, I think, was what we talked about. And there were so many stories about various hauntings on the lakes, but also there was a story, if I remember correctly, about an army that appeared, like, and I think it said, you know, five or seven rows deep, this army of soldiers. I think they were Roman soldiers, which would make sense if it was a military area, but really fascinating. And now, I've never been to the Lake District, but it is on my list of places to go. Nick and Sinead from the Poisoner's Cabinet and I try and do a little trip every so often. And I think the Lake District might be high up on the list. Also, I think a stay in, in Overwater Hall might be high up on the list. Because I'm going to I'm gonna book into room three and stay, stay in that room. And I'm going to find that ghost. But before we deep dive into the stories, I also wanted to say that I love the romantic poets. And when I was in school, I learned William Wordsworth, The Daffodils, um, off by heart. I wandered lonely as a cloud that floats on higher vales and hills when all at once I saw a crowd, a host of golden daffodils beside the lake beneath the trees fluttering and dancing in the breeze. And that has lived in my brain ever since. That's not the whole poem, obviously. But that why do I remember that? But I can't remember basic information from day to day. I can't remember when my appointments are without writing them down. But I can remember the words to daffodils, which I learned when I was in bloody primary school. I do love these stories that become like part of the local folklore and they become part of the scenery of the Lake District itself. So Armbeth Hall, obviously a big hall that would have been an important landmark at the time in the area. And of course, these legends change and adapt over time. They don't remain static. They don't remain the same. 
people add bits to them. Some bits are just stories from from other places that become adopted by this particular place. And you can't really guarantee that the stories that you are reading or the stories that you are hearing about are true. However, if we take this at face value, you know, fundamentally getting married at Halloween back in the day at the end of the 19th century, Halloween was considered a very spiritual time, a time where the veil was thinning. It still is a, a time when the veil is thinning, according to a lot of people. And I can completely understand why people are going, oh, Halloween wedding. It's sort of not, not the best, not the best thing to do, not the best look. So the story goes that this woman was half strangled by her fiancé and then her body flung into the lake so she could drown. And the first the first story we get of a haunting is lights and bells ringing and then a large dog is seen swimming across the lake. I love the inclusion of the large dog here because we know that big black dogs like Black Shook, for example, are incredibly important in English folklore. And in different places, they represent different things. They can be seen as like omens of death. In some places, I spoke to my friend Tim on Patreon about this. In some cases, they were meant to be like the souls of unbaptized babies, which is pretty grim and also, you know, a bit of class A fear-mongering from the church back in olden days. Get your kids baptised or else they're going to, you know, come back as dogs for some reason. But either way, these omens of big black dogs were something that struck fear into the hearts of people all across England. So I do wonder what the connection is between the story of the murdered bride and the big black dog. Because they seem to be interlinked. But I'm not entirely sure how. Like, did people see it as this representation of this dark act that happened? Or is it simply another omen of bad luck where if you see this big black dog, bad things will happen just like bad things happened there? Or maybe this terrible act of murdering this poor woman unleashed something bad into the area? Whatever it is, you better believe that if I'm in the wilderness in the middle of the Lake District and I see a big black dog swimming across a lake, I'm running with my two little feet as fast as they can carry me, which isn't very fast. But I'd make a good effort, though. But besides this mysterious addition of the big black dog, I love the visual of this bride rising from the deep to make her way to her wedding. Like, that is an absolutely beautifully harrowing and terrifying visual and I think the sort of implication of these stories is that this ghostly wedding feast has repeated itself on a loop over the years unseen hands laying tables the sounds of crockery the music the woman rising from the watery deep to attend her own wedding oh I mean come on it's just a gothic dream and then the addition of all these writers who are adding in, you know, a little bit of poetic license to these stories and all of a sudden you have this wedding feast is a feast that seems to be attended by any ghosts that exist in the area. They're somehow all lumbering along to Ambeth House at this particular time like something from Beetlejuice. They're all making their way there. And we get the further inclusion of other stories from around the area like the Screaming Skulls of Calgarth House. I mean, would they be the best wedding guests? I don't know. Very disruptive, I would say. Very loud. Very annoying. But I'm not entirely sure how much of a choice you would get with, you know, your guests. If you're inviting people that are basically just the undead of the area, I'm sure you'd be quite limited to who you could invite and who you couldn't invite without causing offence. And I guess the beautiful thing about this story is that the house isn't there anymore, so you can't disprove it. 
it's just under the lake, which I think adds to the kind of mysticism and mystery and spookiness of the whole of the whole ordeal. This is exactly the type of story that when I was a young teenager, if it was made into a, a PG-12 horror film, I would have been like, hook this to my veins. I love this story. And then you have another murder in the form of the story of Overwater Hall. And we've dealt with some weird, weird hauntings in our time. And I will say that severed arms who don't allow a lake to freeze over. That's up there with some with with some of the weirdest stuff we've talked about. The story itself, let me clarify, is absolutely horrendous. If there's any truth in that story, it is awful. It is terrible. It is violent and grim. But I, I do have to say that reading out loud that when the cold weather comes and the lake begins to freeze, these severed arms appear and punch their way through the freezing formation was difficult that was difficult to read without laughing because it is one of the most bizarre things I have read aloud in a very long time. When I said earlier that if I saw the black dog kind of swimming across the lake towards me, accompanied by phantom bells and lights, I would be sprinting I'd be jogging slowly away. I don't know if I would do the same if I saw a pair of severed arms punching their way through the ice on the lake. I think I'd have to stand and watch and I'd be like, wow. So this is where my sanity ends. Not with a bang, but with a whimper. Or rather, not with a bang, but with some severed arms punching their way through a frozen lake. That feels like a very strange and wonderful kind of down the pub bit of local folklore storytelling. You know, like the drunk guy in the pub being like, you won't believe what I seen on the way home the other night after 14 pints and two whiskies. In terms of the actual story itself of this poor woman coming from Jamaica with her, as it was at the time, illegitimate son and, you know, being brought out onto this fucking lake and drowned with her arms chopped off. Yes, it's a gruesome story, but the bones of the story aren't necessarily beyond the realms of possibility. It is not hard to believe that this wealthy man had a mistress and had a child with this mistress and then abandoned her. That is not difficult to believe. It is also not difficult to believe that a desperate woman in a desperate situation would think to herself, if I bring him, his child, maybe he will do something to help me, to support me. I'm not entirely sure of how easy it would have been to get passage from Jamaica to Cumbria at that point in time. But supposing she did, I can also imagine that a man in that time period who has, you know, gained his own wealth, etc, etc, would not want to invite a scandal. Scandal in the British upper classes was seen as like the worst thing that could happen to your family. You did not want to bring scandal on your family. And unfortunately for this poor mistress, a white man having a baby with a black woman outside of marriage would have been juicy, juicy scandal. And let's be real here. People have been murdered for less. So I don't think this story is beyond the realms of possibility, or at least a version of this story. And if a version of this story is true and I was this woman's spirit, I think I'd be pretty pissed off too. I think I'd be pretty fucking set on my unfinished business on this earthly plane, you know. But if you are a Cumbria native and you've heard different versions of these stories, do let me know. I'd love to hear about it. Equally, if you've stayed in the Overwater Hotel, let me know about it too. Was it spooky? Did you see anything? Did you see an armless ghost? Did you see a cute little ghost dog? We love a ghost dog when it's small and cute and not swimming menacingly across a lake towards you. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Again, thank you to Shan Ellis for her wonderful inspiration. 
The links to where you can find all of her stuff will be in the description of this episode. If you would like to send in your story, you can do so by emailing it to reallifeghoststoriespodcast.gmail.com. You can also check out the website reallifeghoststoriespodcast.com. And if you are desperate for some extra spooky content, you can subscribe to the Patreon. That is patreon.com forward slash stories, where for $5 a month or $2 a month, you get access to heaps of extra content, as well as every single main and mini episode completely ad free. And on that note, I shall see you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.